Welcome back to another episode of True Crime Time. It is I, your host, Megan. I am here with fan favorite and my mom's favorite returning guest. His name is Lou. Hey, Lou. How's it going? Good evening. Is that weird that we do that when we were just talking before this and I have to pretend like we weren't talking? Yeah, well, okay. it's every, it's every, it's every <laughs> podcast in existence. Like, oh my God, Al Pacino's here. Like we were, we didn't already have like a 10 minute conversation prior yeah mm-hmm. yeah all right well <laughs> that's good we're so we're, it's not a clunky intro at all everything's fun um fun. we're gonna start because this is our our tradition now with our booze corner are you drinking any booze today uh yeah what are you drinking tell us about it so this is a local beer close to me in harrisburg north carolina don't don't come stalk me it's called give Berg, your Berg exact address please it's called it's called berg 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 and it's an it's an american pilsner and there's actually a cool story behind this beer so the guy who makes the beer told me this the year it was this year or last year they were doing the 50th anniversary of the town and the town he they approached the town the town said yes we'd like you to make this beer for the 50th anniversary they put the logo of the town they they got the artwork done they spent money to make this beer and also make the can look cool. And at the very last minute, the town was like, yeah, we don't need your beer anymore. What? So, yeah. So what they had to do is when they sold it to me, he was putting these stickers on the beer on each one. And the stickers say, it says unfiltered and rejected. So I, see, <laughs> I see him putting the sticker on the beer. I'm like, dude, what does that sticker mean? Because are these like the beers that didn't make it? Are these like bad beer? And he told me the story that they're not allowed to sell it showing this, which I'm showing to the camera, but like no one's going to see this. It's all audio. And um, yeah, it's the 50th anniversary celebration of the town. And they had this artwork made. They paid the artist. They, you know, put work into it. There's like the historic post office and they have their other beers on here. They really did a good job. It looks cool. And it's a solid beer. And there's, you know, there's a lot of local beers around here. And at the very last minute, they were like, nah, we're good. And did wow. not reimburse them, did not do anything. So you and... know this guy, he has a chip on his shoulder. He's walking around with a little bit of a grudge, ready to share his story with locals. Wow. Yeah. I heard you the think whole thing. There are any skeletons in his closet? Is he like a person that I should investigate? Based on how he how he looks and the way he speaks, I'm gonna say no. Maybe in his like vat of like basement beer. There's like a body. Is the mayor of Harrisburg slowly <laughs> dissolving in a in a pilsner somewhere? Like I'm picturing I, like the Joker vat of acid. Like that's what <laughs> I'm picturing. Like yeah, yeah, maybe I don't know. We don't know. Um, wow, yeah. So what you, I'm. What, what are you drinking? I'm actually not drinking any booze tonight. I needed kids i'll be honest i needed some serotonin i'm adjusting to new meds i'm not drinking tonight but i am what i am drinking is water in my beautiful gremlins glass look at that lou isn't that beautiful oh, right it's beautiful it's actually um crystal light I'm going crazy tonight crystal light um oh that rhymed i didn't mean to do that crystal light so... where'd you where'd you order that from from 1997 um, I actually walked down the aisle and picked it up from Target, but thanks for being a dick. They still sell Crystal Light? <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, it's super popular, so. 
Wow. I Do remember you know anything? Like, I remember that was like a huge thing. It was like people like trying to stop drinking soda in the late nineties. Like I just drink 45 of these every day and it's better. It's like, I don't know if it's better. I actually have, I don't know if we talked about this before and I don't think anyone cares, but I cannot drink water. Like I, it's so, <laughs> I don't like how it tastes. And so for the most part, often my, my organs are like dried up sponges. Um, so yeah, just trying to hydrate. <laughs> yeah. Something that I'll actually drink. Um, you know, this, this is boring. No one cares what we're talking about. No one cares. No, people all. care because, okay. So you don't like to drink water. There's lots of people who don't. I drink room temperature water to the point where I bring a glass jug with me to work. By the end of the day, this is <laughs> a warm. glass jug. <laughs> Yeah, it's warm water, and it's got electrolytes in it, unflavored. So I drink essentially almost all day just a lightly salted, like, beach water. That's Ew. what I – yeah. That you sounds know awful. I just want the hydration. I just want my brain to not be a sponge, a dried-up you know sponge. What? Everyone who's listening, let me know. Do you care about this conversation? Because I feel, <laughs> I feel like the answer is no. And if you also tell me no, I will respect your honesty and your integrity – and yeah, and we'll never talk about this again. We'll never talk about hydration ever again. We'll only talk about alcohol. And murder. Um, and murder. And maybe some other weird crap sometimes, like um, stealing corpses and like some paranormal crap like that. But you so, know, there's been defenses. There's been defenses of like dehydration. What? Like like I did a bad That's thing. Because I was no, no one, I, I, not in one story I've heard has ever said, you know what? Like, almost like the opposite, not the opposite, but like, instead of being hangry, like, I was so dehydrated and thirsty that I had to kill my entire family. Like, that's not, that's not a thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I, I feel like I have. I feel like I've heard dehydration as like a, a reason why people do crazy things. And also, like, was it Harvey Milk, the, 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 the gay icon from the 70s and 80s, that guy who killed him, his defense was that he was eating only junk food at the time like like um what are those things uh like 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 ho-hos or like twinkies and that um, was his defense and that worked i believe you know I what i would at... say if that was someone's defense is fire your lawyer that's what i would say to yeah, them. I, think, I think it worked though I mean, fire a... your lawyer i'm gonna look into that because i'm not i think that's horrible maybe we'll revisit that at the end of this <laughs> at the end of this episode <laughs> yeah. but today we are going to talk about Beloved actor and comedian, Phil Hartman. As this is a true crime podcast, the story sadly ends in a murder. But we're not going to start there. Um, just really quickly want to cite my sources. They include Wikipedia, the TMZ podcast, Last Days, ABC News, which I believe you also partook in, Lou. Yep. And also my own memory, because I was about 11 years old. I want to say something like that. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not even that old. When this, I didn't do the math. I just guesstimated. Um, but when this occurred, but prior to that, Phil Hartman had definitely been a part of my childhood, personally. Like not like I didn't know him, but you know, you know what I mean. Um, but we're gonna start in 1948. Because that's when Philip Edward Hartman was born in Brantford, Ontario. So he was a Canadian. Um, and he had a big Catholic family. He had seven siblings, which is a lot. Um, very large. And because his family was large, 
he didn't really get the attention or affection that he craved. And he would later say this, uh, say about this, I suppose I didn't get what I wanted out of my family life, so I started seeking love and attention elsewhere. And many, that's happened to many people, right? That's common. So when he was 10, the Hartman family moved to the U.S., and they lived in several places, Maine, Connecticut. Then they went over to the West Coast, where he attended high school in L.A., People would say he acted like a class clown. He did go on to college, and then he dropped out to become a roadie with a rock band, which sounds super fun. Um, that was 1969. And then in 1972, he actually went back to school and studied graphic arts at California State University. He then developed and ran his own graphic arts business, creating more than 40 album covers for bands, which okay. is pretty cool. Um, that's not something I knew before I started looking deeper into him. Some of the bands he made album covers for were America, our parents' favorite band, everyone's parents' favorite band, <laughs> um, Steely Dan, everyone's parents' other favorite band, uh, Poco and Harvey, who I'm not... Pokey, Poco and Harvey Mandel, did I just say Pokey? Like Gumby? Gumby and Pokey. Pokey's um, album. Yeah, po <laughs> Pokey's solo album from when he split with Gumby. Um, and he also actually, his first TV appearance was actually on the dating game. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty interesting. A lot of people were, that was a lot of Star Trek. It so was. Did he win? I think he won. Did he win? Does anyone also, win? I was just going to say, how do you win? Because then you're just on a date with a stranger and that sounds terrible. I don't know. How do you win? I would like to interview, that will be another episode, is interviewing winners of the dating game. And there was that that uh, murderer, serial killer, the dating game killer guy. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that guy. I can't think of his name. It's not important. But yeah, there was a serial killer who was also on the dating game. Um, not at the same time. So, in 1975... He began attend, uh, attending nighttime comedy classes run by the famous, or infamous, California-based improv comedy group, The Groundlings, and formally joined the group in 1979. That's where he made friends with Paul Rubens, whose name you might recognize as Pee Wee Herman, rest in peace. I actually started writing this prior to his passing, which is very sad. Um... So they actually worked on the Pee Wee Herman character together, the two of them, and they developed the TV show, the Pee Wee Herman show, that started airing on HBO in 1991. Hartman played a character called Captain Carl in both that show and the children's show Pee Wee's Playhouse, which we definitely watched a lot of in my house. Mm -hmm. um, my cousin even had a chair, like a little, you know, those like little fuzzy, like little kids chairs that she called Cherry. And he also had a cherry. Um, I definitely remember my sister really liking that show. He did take a bunch of small roles in other movies and started working as a voice actor as well. He was in things like Three Amigos, Jumping Jack Flash. He did voices for The Smurfs, Dennis the Menace, etc. So he's like, he's getting parts. Um, in 1986, Phil joined the cast of Saturday Night Live. And he was once quoted as saying that he joined the show because he really wanted the exposure and credibility so he could write movies for himself. So 
SNL wasn't the goal, but he was happy to be there, certainly. Um, he would do over 70 different characters in his time in SNL. He was so good at impressions. He did Ronald Reagan. Did you watch that one? Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that one made me laugh. Um, if you guys aren't familiar, I would I would send you on over to YouTube. But the Reagan one was funny because he would do his like, vo- I, I not even attempt to do a Ronald Reagan voice, but he would do this little kind of like almost like a shy, like polite Reagan for cameras or photo ops and then the minute people would leave he would just start yelling at people and like barking <laughs> orders and it was so funny um he also did frank sinatra michael kane charlton heston bill clinton just to name a few and he would actually later meet bill clinton and he said to him i guess i owe you a few apologies and he actually thought bill clinton thought it was pretty funny and actually wound up sending phil an autograph photo that said you're not the president, but you play uh, you play one on TV, and you're okay, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> His Bill Clinton is what really, like, springboarded him on SNL into, like, more yes. TV, you know. Yes, that was, like, his most famous or most recognized character. Um, mm-hmm. He would get the nickname of Glue, which allegedly was given by Adam Sandler for his ability to hold together a sketch or show. Um, he was characterized by many as low maintenance and helpful. For example, he helped castmate Jan Hooks with her stage fright. He put people over constantly. Like that's that's another reason he was the glue is that he was there making other people look good as well. It, he wasn't trying to kind of like steal the scene. Mm-hmm. He's very talented, super talented guy, but he is a team player, right? He's not asking for a lot. Lorne Michaels, who's SNL's creator, spoke very highly of him. Uh, He did wind up leaving SNL in 1994, one of the reasons being most of his castmates had left, and he found, like, the energy had kind of changed over. He didn't really feel like his particular brand of humor was fitting in with the new material and cast. So there was a lot of, there was a lot more, like, physical humor that was more like when your Chris Farley and your Adam Sandler were, were kind of more popular and they were getting more attention um he would go on to do a show called news radio from about 1995 to 1998 and then he would go on to voice many many characters in the uh, beloved animated series the simpsons from 1991 to 1998 his most famous character on that show in my in my opinion but also it's just a fact troy mcclure mm-hmm. i can hear it in my head Hi, I'm Troy McClure. Like, it's just, you know, it's just burned in my brain. Um, The creator of The Simpsons also had lovely things to say about him. He really seems like he had a solid reputation everywhere he went. Yeah, That's that's really, like, the gist of it. Mm -hmm. Definitely a solid guy. Yeah. Um, People, and also people really enjoyed working with him, not just, like, the, the bosses. He was in a bunch of shows and movies. He was in Coneheads. And Sergeant Bilko, he was in Sly Married an Axe Murderer, um, Small Soldiers, Third Rock from the Sun, Jingle All the Way, which I definitely saw in the theater. I remember seeing that in the theater. Um, He mainly was always a supporting character, but the people around him say he didn't really mind. Because, again, he has kind of like this team player attitude, right? Um, Hartman stated at one point that his style was heavily influenced by Bill Murray. 
and in a sick way, this is what he said, he made himself a career by doing a bad imitation of another comic, which I thought was funny for him to say. But I don't know if anyone else would say that about him because I think of them as completely different. Do you do you think there's like a similarity between them? Well, <clears throat> you know, I did have to brush up on like his past a little bit because we all know the Hart Phil Hartman that we know. Right. But yeah, so he was born in the late 40s. So a lot of his characters were like based on like, in my opinion, like the classic Hollywood, like late 40s, 50s, like movie stars like caricatures of that so i think maybe that's what he kind of was meaning like um you know because like a lot of his character like even like the captain carl character it's <laughs> a zany you know pirate guy with Wee herman but he sort of like was almost like a, a almost like a combination of like a like detective noir villain and like one of the three stooges or something like that <laughs> like, he's, he's like he's like hey pay away like he's just like it's weird and he was, and I don't want to get ahead of, like, obviously you're going through his whole biography, but, yeah, when he started on SNL, that was when SNL was considered dead. The 86th season was, like, Dana Carvey, so that's, like, re, you know, rejuvenated the, the cast, and he left as, like, Will Ferrell and those guys were coming in, and I feel like if he had stayed, you know, obviously wasn't dead, he would have after the late 90s when Judd Apatow and all these guys, like all those Will Ferrell like that 2000 to like 2010, like boom of comedies, he would have had bigger parts. He would have been so. more involved. I think so. He's he's one of those he's a classic character. Like he yeah. really is you could kind of put him in anything. I just thought it was interesting that he was kind of saying that he, you know, we're always our own worst critics, you know, and he's like, I'm doing a bad imitation of Bill Murray and I'm like, no, you're not. You're doing your own thing. Like whatever yeah. you think you were influenced by, you're totally doing your own thing. Um, because I I like Bill Murray as well. Like I grew up, my dad was a huge Bill Murray fan, so we grew up, you know, watching all of those movies too. And I'm familiar with those. You know, they're kind of like familiar, old, nostalgic, like comfort movies, kind of to me. And mm -hmm. I don't really see the similarities but what he was speaking to was kind of his ability like i think he cited like ghostbusters his ability to almost play like the straight man yeah i was gonna say that he as was... as he would like deliver something maybe just by like changing his expression or like whatever and that makes it funny but you'd think that he's just playing this character who has no personality and no humor etc yeah and, and pretty much everything he was in so jingle all the way he was like the like stuck up kind of <laughs> phony neighbor yeah almost like a he, ned flanders almost in a way yeah exactly he was really good <laughs> at being like this like as you said he, he's a straight man but he delivered like he was like he was really good at being like this like guy on the outside who looks like he's totally all together and everything's great but he's really tight wound and <laughs> and sort of like out of his mind just like in like, like neurotic like, or yeah yeah he has a small role in yeah toy soldiers where he plays the dad and i think i sent you guys a clip you know someone was talking about the movie and they brought up phil hartman so i was like oh i knew we're doing this episode so what they said was what i think we all felt he's not really in the movie the movie's about the kids and the toys and you know he's kind of like a background character but there's a scene where he's like losing his mind because 
the, if you guys know the movie, these toy soldiers come alive, like these like live action GI Joes basically fighting these other toys and they destroy his house, like destroy it. So he's like yelling at the company who's like made the toys and he's like losing his mind and they just hand him a check and he goes, oh, that looks good and just walks away. It's like, go walk <laughs> off camera. So like that's typical, yeah. the typical guy he played in the late 90s in movies. He was like that guy who was like, I got it. I can't. Oh, okay. Thank you. And then just like kind of like, he, he, like he's off screen. So yeah. I, I, just, I just thought that was really funny. Like that was him. He was someone that even though he had these like smaller parts, like when I was, you know, when I was little and like, I want to say, so before the age of 11, I like people knew his name, right? Yep. He still stood out. It was like, it was still enjoyable. Like those moments that we did have with him. Where it's like, oh, I'm like, however old I am, I'm like nine. I'm like, oh, Phil Hartman, like, oh, he's funny. Like, and his voice, even on The Simpsons, when you didn't see his face, because he did voice multiple characters, not just Troy McClure, right? You knew his voice, even when he was doing a character. So there's something special about this guy. There always was. Um, so we're going to get a little more into like his personal life. He was married and divorced in the early 70s. So that's one. He then married again in 1982. This marriage lasted three years and ultimately also ended in divorce. So that's two. His ex-wife, Lisa Strain, would say that he was super reclusive when he wasn't working. So she noted he was kind of, he was pretty passive and kind of emotionally unavailable. Almost like maybe he had used up everything for work, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, which is interesting because that's not something I would have guessed from the way that he seems, but you know, he's an actor, he's acting. So, um, in 1987, Phil Hartman would marry for a third time, a woman named Bryn Om Omdahl. Did I say that right? I want, I sometimes yeah. I want to say Omdale, but it's spelled doll. So Omdahl will say she was an aspiring actress and a former model. They actually met on a blind date, which I feel like you don't really hear too many stories about. I hear more like I went on a blind date. It was awful where he was, a, he tried to murder me or something like that. <laughs> Not like, Oh, this resulted in a marriage. That's interesting. Um, they were going to have two children, Sean and Bergen. The marriage had some rockiness to it. Bryn was reportedly frustrated that she wasn't really able to get a foothold in her chosen career. So she's not really getting, you know, into the entertainment industry industry like she wants. Um, the word used was it, she was intimidated by Phil's success, which I was like, I don't know that she's intimidated because intimidation means like you're kind of like you're scared and you're passive. I, I think she was more jealous than, in, than intimidated yeah. but mm -hmm. i thought it was interesting that they used that word um it could be both it could certainly be both it was also reported that she was often abusive both both physically and verbally at one point she actually sent a letter to his ex-wife his second ex-wife saying she would quote rip her eyes out if she spoke to phil again yeah so go on to i actually in my porking around the internet I found kind of like the full more of a, the story around this. And she was saying how, um, I don't know for which baby, but she had heard they had a baby and she kind of sent like a, like a card or like a note saying congratulations. Mm -hmm. And that's what set Bryn off. She was like, don't talk to him. Don't come near my family. But I'm like, why? She's being nice. Like, I don't understand why you would be so rageful 
in that scenario like it seems disproportionate in my opinion but... and in in the uh, abc documentary uh, the last days of phil hartman they do talk about the letter and she gets a letter she his ex-wife says it was a two-page letter for, so think about that you wrote That's... someone like i hate you whatever i'll cut your you know like it was all threatening and almost like basically like a death threat but two pages and then when she met up you know she did eventually like get in touch with phil at a later time and his response was you should have seen the letter she wanted to send so apparently <laughs> it was like way worse like she definitely had like issues so yeah, yeah. well and intimidated the wrong word it's jealous you know envy that was the kind of stuff i got from it yeah like there there seems to be a little bit of like a kind of a control element too but so um when i was scouring the the ends of the internet for just kind of information or or almost like video like i wanted to kind of get more of the uh, gist of what she was like i found something from the howard stern show where they were both there phil and Bryn, and he was saying he was talking to um Bryn, and he was saying how attractive she was and oh because phil has been married before have you met the why like the, his ex-wives and she was like no i don't think so and he's like oh not the first one and she was like no he goes oh okay well what about and she's like i never wanted to meet the second one and she kind of made a face <laughs> and it's just like i don't know if the, that makes you think that you look like cool or tough but you just look like a dick kind of like just don't why why throwing the shade like that because yeah if phil doesn't have a problem which he didn't seem to have a problem why do you have a problem like i don't know i don't know whatever uh, it's like that's... seventh it's like seventh grade kind of tactics yeah yeah um so you know from obviously from what we're saying Bryn sounds a bit troubled and for some reason neither of them wanted to divorce which does seem like the better alternative uh, phil allegedly actually considered retiring to save them from these issues which is a quite a sacrifice right where you're like well, let me cut off the thing that's causing her this, like, agita, this, like, pain, right? This whatever she's dealing with. Um, so Phil actually tried to get Bryn into roles. He tried to get her parts. But as time went by, she started really getting into drinking and drugs, which made this very difficult or, you know, even impossible. So her drug of choice being cocaine... She also struggled with depression and was medicated for that. Now, I'm not sure if she was medicated for a long stretch of time, if this was just like little pieces here and there, whatever the case is. Um, she did have a few stints in rehab. Phil actually removed his kids from the house a few times to take them out of the situation. I believe he would take them to like friends or family's houses just to kind of, you know, take them, take them out of that because she would have these outbursts that were fueled by her drug and alcohol consumption. So that's not good for kids to be around. So I definitely applaud him for, for doing that because it's hard. He tried. Yeah, he tried. He tried. He tried. Because I understand that that's hard. Um, I grew up in a household with um, with one unstable parent. It's not the one who appeared on this podcast <laughs> because he's dead. That's dark, right? That's really dark. No, but um, that would be weird. Like, how could he even... Like I'll get out the Ouija board. I'm like, hello. We should, we should do a Ouija board episode. No, we shouldn't. I'm never okay. playing with a Ouija board. <laughs> okay, fine. But not because of my dad. Just in general, like I don't. I'm not going to touch a Ouija board. Um, but I digress. That took a very dark turn. I apologize if anyone's uncomfortable. 
it's one of those things that like when you live it it's almost like fun to weird people out with it you're like oh how's your dad i'm like he's dead and they're like he's a he's a skeleton i'm like my dad's a skeleton they're like oh my god i'm like no it's okay he really is like it's fine i don't know that probably people are probably like oh this girl needs therapy right now it's okay everything's fine (laughs) it's all fine (laughs) everything's fine no it really is fine um so we talked about the letter to Jan Hooks. Oh, no, we didn't talk. So this is another letter. So basically, it was found later on after an event occurred that she had actually wrote or uh, at least one, but possibly a few letters to the actress I mentioned before, Jan Hooks, the one who worked with Phil on SNL. And basically, she was like, they were full of warnings, like, not to get close to Phil. Now, because they were found among her possessions, they probably were never sent, unless she kept copies of them for some reason. But she still held on to them, which is weird. Like, what what are you doing just writing crazy, angry letters to to anyone, like, your husband comes (laughs) in contact with? Like, what are you... Just all hopped up on cocaine, like, I'm I'm on a letter-writing tear. Yeah, I mean, I guess. But, like, and I'll just say, like, relationships like this don't magically become healthy, Mm -hmm. right? This is not a thing that happens. So if you're in something that looks like this, get out. (laughs) Get out. Violence, mental abuse, and wild stalkery jealousy are never cool. And I know that can be easier said than done. I know people are like, I'm going to stay for the kids. Like, I get it. It's hard. Whatever. But don't waste any more time than you have to being with someone who makes your life chaotic and terrible. Right? You don't have to do that. Um, With that being said, Phil was not a perfect husband. He wasn't a perfect husband. Um, I mentioned before how he would kind of withdraw and that's something they, they kind of expanded more on in this ABC special that I think we had both um, watched separately. And they kind of talked about when he was interested in someone initially, he would be like, he would come on, maybe not super strong, but he's he's noticeably into it, right? Yeah. And then whether he's comfortable or whether it's because he's losing interest, he withdraws at some point. Now, whether this is after they get married or whatever the case is, he does kind of become this passive, like he doesn't want to really be bothered, whatever. And I can see in this situation in particular, how that could be problematic and almost add fuel to the fire. And I'm not in any way saying anything that happened is his fault. But when you have someone who is almost like a, like dry kindling pouring gasoline on themselves and they're wanting attention from you mm-hmm. and you don't give it to them fatal attraction right yeah, Light the yeah. match boom it goes up right because he's like i'm not giving this to you so for someone who's volatile right it's difficult to find the right way to deal with them because you don't want to argue with them because that makes it worse right yeah but also totally pulling back 100 percent has a similar effect. Yeah, so well, they, that that's what they hard. said. Like, that was a kind of a, a, a trend with him. He would fall in love very quickly, yeah. be all, all into it, be very, you know, a tentative boyfriend, husband. And then 
attentive um, than become aloof. Now that might have been about something, you know, it's all about him. Like he's, you know, people who are like this, like they, where they become actors, comedians are like basically thriving off of attention and like the dopamine that you get from that. Right. It, it, it's, it's, it's very common for like people who are like on stage and get 5,000 people to like basically love them. Then they go backstage and they're just quiet. And that is usually what destroys people. So he seemed that, yeah, he wasn't a great husband in that aspect as far as like being aloof and, but he wasn't like diving into drugs or doing horrible behavior. But I agree. If you're like this and if you watch the documentary and the second wife, she tells the story. The reason why she knew it was over was like, Basically, she was trying to seduce him. They went away on vacation. She was trying to have sex or whatever. They got, she got a sexy outfit, and he kind of responded like, "Yeah, can you just like stop right now?" And you know, like, what it, didn't he say? Must you? Yeah, yeah, must you? Which oh. I think I think her response would be like my like mine too. Like I'm done. Like that's I don't want to fix this. So they ended it, which it should have ended. But now, fast forward to the third marriage. He is this way. She must right. at this point have known that, but. He's that way, and instead of her being a normal functioning adult, she's in the bathroom blowing lines of cocaine. So, like, you are you couldn't be farther on each end of the spectrum, right? Than that, like, someone they really, just like, they really were on you know, like, kind of opposite ends of this thing because she, whereas other people, like, you're exactly like you're saying. They had, you know, he had this relationship with his ex-wife where it just wasn't working out. He wasn't be able to be available to her. So she was like, that's whatever. And they called it a day, right? Mm-hmm. That's as healthy as that could have gone. Yeah. Now, I'm not there. I'm not saying there wasn't any big fights or whatever, but I'm saying that's how that's supposed to go, right? Well, I mean, best, best, best worst case scenario, let's say. But this is not kind of how how this is going but a lot of people would talk about phil's commitment and love for his children which is probably why he felt so committed to staying in the marriage he would actually become friends with joe rogan former fear factor host and podcast host um and like don't come for me we're not here to talk about joe rogan it's relevant to the story he's not on my list of favorite people it's whatever (laughs) so they were close enough that Phil would tell him about the problems he was having in his marriage. So they're like pretty good friends. And Joe Rogan claims to have encouraged him five or so times to get a divorce. He did. He was like, buddy, like, no. Yeah. Phil wanted to stay for his kids. Yeah. So this is definitely, this is all important information, like as we move on, essentially. Um, So we come to May 27th, 1998. Bryn Hartman went to a restaurant to meet her producer friend, Christine Zander. I believe uh, this isn't like super relevant, but I believe she was a producer on like third rock from the sun, something like that. Um, they had a few drinks and Christine said that Bryn was in good spirits when she left. And it wasn't like a, a bender, like it wasn't like crazy, but she had a few drinks. Um, when she got home, her and Phil had apparently heated argument, after which Phil went to bed, which is kind of on brand, just like what we were talking about. And this apparently was a regular event, and the cycle was typically the same. Phil would withdraw and go to bed after arguing, where he was just like, okay, like, whatever, whatever. So this night, things went a little bit differently. 
Sometime around 3 a.m., Bryn went into a safe in the home and retrieved a handgun. She went to the bedroom and she shot Phil three times at point blank range as he slept. Two of those shots were reportedly fatal. Around 3.25 a.m., Bryn called her longtime friend, Ron Douglas, who lived nearby. Nobody is sure what exactly was happening between the time that she shot Phil and the time she called Ron, right? Because it's around 3 a.m. and 3.25, so what's happening in that time? 25 Panic. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So... She calls Ron, and police police do suspect that in this window, she's, like, drinking and, and what you're saying, doing coke, like, yeah. tons, right? Um, which she maybe had started even when she got home. Like, no, no one can really say. It's hard to say. But that was kind of, like, her MO. So their two children who were in the home at the time of this awful event remained sleeping, thank God. And did not have to witness this god-awful tragedy. So Bryn tells Ron initially a lie. She says Phil wasn't home. He went out. She didn't want to be alone. Could she come over? And Ron's like, well, you can't just like leave your kids in the middle of the night. And at this time, I believe they were nine and six. So he says that. He tells her, just take some aspirin, go to bed, yada, yada. About 20 minutes later, she just shows up at his house anyway and is banging mm -hmm. on the door and ringing the doorbell, which is exactly what you want at almost 4 a.m., right? Yeah. <laughs> Some maniac on your door. So Ron looks out the window and sees Bryn's basically she's wearing pajamas and no shoes. So this kind of looks like it's more of an emergency type situation. He opens the door and he immediately smells booze. It like hits him in the face. Um. And that makes him mad because they're friends and he knows about her struggles and how, you know, everything that's been going on in her rehab and her substance issues and all that. So he's kind of pissed because what the and now you're like waking me up like with your bullshit, whatever. So before he can really get into it with her, because I don't know if she saw the look on his face or, or whatever, she goes, Don't yell at me. Phil yells at me all the time. Yeah. So she comes inside. She is a mess, a big old mess. She winds up blurting out that she killed Phil. And Ron's thinking that she's just doing some binge rambling. And he's not really taking her serious at all. So again, it's known amongst friends that their relationship is stormy at best. So he's probably just thinking they had another fight as usual, blah, blah. At one point, Bryn actually passes out, but Ron is able to revive her. And there is now concern that maybe she overdosed on pills or something, too. So that's his concern. He's like, oh, my God, like, what? So then apparently there's a back and forth between her going to the bathroom and throwing up and passing out, like, like a few times. So it's Chaos. like the house guests, like, from hell. <laughs> like, at four, like, you wake up at 4 a.m. and your friend, you're like, oh, my God, like, why did you come to my house? Like, that's crazy. Um, it's like, good morning. Not, yeah. So she sobers up enough after this, so after clearing her system, I guess, several times, um, she actually has a cup of tea, and then she tells Ron to call her house, which is weird, weird thing to say, because no yeah. one is able to pick up the phone <laughs> there. And she, and she knows that. She knows that. And at one point, she's kind of fumbling around with her bag, and just a handgun falls out. 
So, yeah. And this concerns Ron a great deal, of course. <laughs> and he grabs it and he checks it. And the barrel of the gun, like he's checking, and it appears that all six chambers are loaded. He thinks. It appears. So he feels kind of relief in a way because he doesn't think the gun has been fired. So he's like, okay. So this this B is just saying crazy shit. So Bryn finally agrees it's time to go home. And Ron believes she's sober enough to drive, but she says she'll only go if he goes too and follows in his car. He checks the gun again and notices all the chambers don't actually have bullets in them. Two to three are missing. But he still can't really wrap his brain around anything really bad happening. He's thinking maybe she, like in her rage, fired some warning shots or something because I guess that wouldn't be too out of character. Or maybe he was just hoping and searching for any kind of rational explanation for them not being there. He does not give the gun back. Smartly. He does yes. not give it back. Uh, he actually locks it in the trunk of his car, even. So he takes it one step further. Um, so he's following Bryn back to her house. Around 6 a.m., Bryn calls another friend, Judy, and says, I think I killed Phil. My life is over. Bryn is audibly upset. She's crying. She's speeding. She's blowing through lights, right? So she's just kind of, like, tearing through the town. Um I imagine this was like a car phone because the cell phones at the time, I mean, I don't know, maybe were, like maybe like for rich were, people. They like, were rich. They they had cell phones. They had like those big cell phones. But I'm thinking what I just thought was so she's back in her car. Yeah. So he took the gun away. Yes. But he figured, okay, an hour and a half of puking, you're you're good to drive again, even though you smell like vodka. <laughs> and where are the so the kids this whole time, I, I'm assuming, are just still at home sleeping, yes. not knowing any of this. Yes. yes. Yeah. So, the friend, Judy, finds out she's on her way home, Bryn's on her way home, and is so concerned, she, she decides to meet her there. So, they get to the house, Ron goes to the master bedroom, and very sadly is able to confirm that Phil has indeed been murdered. That's not what you want to find on the other end of that. You really want to hope your friend's talking some bullshit to you, you know? Um yeah. They they also decide um what, what was I going to say? No, Bryn Bryn then actually called two other friends. So she is calling everyone. She calls her friend Stephen Marcy and she tells them what she did too. She tells them and they are like we are coming over because they also are probably like what? No, that's not. Of course you did. <laughs> right. You know. So Ron actually calls 911. So Ron's the the adult in the situation Smart, smartest friend he is the smart he is the friend you want to have he's the one that talks you off the ledge he helps you when you're thrown up passing out of his house he takes your gun away he drives to your house he calls the cops for you ron is a good friend um he tells them that a man has been shot by his wife he just ratted her right out too he's like i don't care that you're my friend anymore like sorry which you know accountability it's important um so he's saying that a man has been shot by his wife and that she had told him, but initially he hadn't believed her. So he te he's telling the whole truth. He also tells them he has what he believes is the murder weapon. The scene is becoming increasingly chaotic since they get back to the house. Brain is still hysterical and actually has locked herself in the bedroom with Phil's body. 
Ron is trying to get her to open the door. Everyone is confused and upset. What's going on? So Bryn then calls her sister about 6.21 a.m. and tells her that she killed Phil. She is distraught. She she is. Because I think she, this is dawning on her as she's coming off of the booze and the coke and whatever else she had in her system. What she's actually done. Yeah. Right? So it's it's occurring to her. She says to her sister, tell my children I love them. At 6.32, the police call her house. And Bryn actually answers. They are very short conversations. I believe a few. believe a, a few short ones. So Bryn was reportedly very difficult to understand as she's still, she's hysterical, right? She's probably like hyperventilating and crying. It sounds like there was a lot of commotion outside the door from, you know, from all the chaos going on. Um, and I think, I believe, or it's theorized that this is making her kind of increasingly frantic, like her friends being there, the police are there, and she kind of feels like the walls are closing in. So their son actually woke up and was taken into protective custody um which is good that's good so he's out of the house yeah he's out of the house so at 6 38 a.m um the doors on the bedroom are still locked and brinley is down on the bed next to phil she actually has a different handgun i don't know where she got this from it was somewhere in the house too um she has a different handgun she puts it into her mouth and she pulled the trigger. And the shot was fatal. Um, police cleared the house. Their daughter was removed from the house. And they actually had to gain entry through uh, to the bedroom by throwing a brick through the window. So they were able to kind of get in and assess the situation. She, see if she needed medical attention, which she did not, um, unfortunately. And thankfully, thankfully... Their aunt, Bryn's sister, Catherine, and her husband took in the kids and raised them. And I did read somewhere um, that they're both doing well. So yeah, that is that is that is a bright spot, um, you know, too. And it's good that they had family that could take them in instead of having to go to strangers or whatever. You know, that's not what you want. So um, I do remember hearing about this on the news and being so bummed um this honestly i didn't think i didn't think it would bum me out so much when i was writing this and it did like it did by that by the time i finished writing this i shut my computer and i was like oh man yeah because it's because it's like it's it's everything because it's it's knowing him and loving him and him not seeming like like, this isn't the guy you would think this story is about, right? So it was very, it was, like, extra shocking when it came on the news. And it's just, like, when you hear, like, actually the logistics of what happened and these and these poor kids, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's so sad that they don't have either of their parents because their mother lost her shit, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's bad. I mean, there's obviously for lots of different reasons. I mean, right. count them. But yeah, I mean, all this, as you're describing the last moments, the last couple of hours, that's all I keep thinking about was, you know, this was, sure, you can, I mean, they're gone. We can't know the nitty gritty details. But, 
Yeah, I'm sure they were fighting. I'm sure there was lots of screaming. I mean, the people did say like they saw, they witnessed them arguing, fighting at SNL, like right before he had to go on TV, all that kind of. So it wasn't like hidden or secret or anything like that. Right. Um, but that whole, I mean, obviously, there's no reason to kill, you know, someone unless you're like defending your life. But I really do feel like, yeah, she went out with her friend. She had some drinks. She definitely was doing blow. She went back home. Something didn't go her way, whatever. Um, and he went to, you know, he just, just to being exhausted from fighting. I, I mean, we've all been in arguments. Like, it can be exhaust, especially when you're having probably the same argument for years. Right. Like, oh, my, I mean, I've been there. And you're just like, <laughs> I, I, can, I can only just go to sleep. There's, I don't want to be awake because I just can't think. I can't fix it. I don't know right. what to do. And you go to bed and then you should never now in this case, obviously he never woke up again. And I just feel like it wasn't like she had to kill him to stop him or because he was, you know, whatever, like a, a, a murder of even a murder of passion is not an excuse, but no. none of those things. She just was on cocaine, probably pills booze. Well, psychotic. And yeah, but she know. amped herself up because that's the thing is you have to be. In order to do something like that, right? Like, you're not... She couldn't have been, like, calm, right? Her mindset isn't calm. Her mindset is, he's in my way. He's preventing me from getting something I want. He doesn't treat me like I want. Like, so she has kind of rolled all this up. And she's having a moment where she is kind of, like... It's almost like... It doesn't qualify under, like, the actual, like heat of passion like crime because that's like the way that my criminal justice teacher <laughs> had described that was like if you come home and you find your wife in bed with another man like that's like heat of passion right but she did this herself she yeah. amped herself up right and he's sleeping like what kind of cowardly ass shit like i don't i'm not gonna go into it crazy because you know her children are alive and thank god they are and out of respect for them like i'm not going to talk too crazy about their mother um not that she doesn't deserve it <laughs> yeah no no it's not so, that she doesn't it, deserve it but it's extremely selfish like it was yes. like a a a, a short term solution that with catastrophic you know um qualities to it like i know it'll make me feel better right now I'll just kill him and then it's over and then I'm assuming those 20 minutes are that even her drug fueled rage are her knowing like this is irreversible. I did not have to do this. And maybe she was debating killing herself. And I don't know, maybe in her drug fueled psychosis, she thought if maybe if I get go somewhere else and come back, he'll like wake up or. Yeah, it's hard. It it's hard bad. to say. Um, I really because I don't think. You know, and I don't I don't know that much about her. One of my interests, like I do enjoy getting into like like people's mindsets, right? Or like psychologically profiling them. That's the thing that I enjoy. But I don't know enough about her to really armchair Yeah, profile, exactly. Profile her. But I will say I don't think that she got home from the restaurant that night intending to kill her husband. I yeah. don't even know that that happened during their argument. I don't know that th that thought occurred to her. What I do suspect is that 
after he went to bed that's when this started swirling around because that's when she was going over it in her brain like i don't think this was a thing that she planned i think it was a thing that occurred to her when she was in her like you're saying like her drug fueled rage or whatever the case is and then she just acted and then it's done and there's you can't you can't undo it you can't unring that bell it's done it's done mm-hmm. um and immediate regret yeah. and i also feel like i mean if you want to like get like into the you know like the minutia of it like so you're doing you're drink you know she's drinking that's what really probably like pushed it over you know you're cocaine is a stimulant if you are doing cocaine or whatever other pills she might have been doing you know you're up and crazy now when you're drinking you can get real angry you know it like amplifies all your emotions but with the cocaine mixed she probably drank like 10 times as much as she if she had not been on cocaine she probably just passed out but because she's on stimulants she probably drank a bottle of liquor and now you're in a place of like you're absolutely out of control and you're just impulse only you're just complete impulse you do that and you know you regret it there's no as you said there's no coming back no and then she didn't know what to do that's why she called like three basically the thing you shouldn't do if you murder someone is she told everyone immediately and because of regret and you know probably shame and she doesn't know what to do and i really feel like the you know the suicide of you know her killing herself is as you said the walls you're in your house you know your kids are in the house now your friends are banging on the door there's no like you're not going to like walk out of here you're going to jail so yeah. she felt like this is the only option and i don't understand how they couldn't get that damn door open like they didn't break the door down like that's crazy to me too but whatever it's not she, well they don't they don't know keep in mind too because she had she had a gun they don't know what other weapons she might have they might be putting themselves in danger so that's the rule kind of in situations like that where if you don't know because he also remember ron told the police he believed he had the murder weapon he wasn't like i have it i'm sure so they have to kind of tread lightly especially if there's friends in the house if if there are people that she cares about because that is something they may do when they're like try to talk to her like you know her and she trusts you like they might try that they don't want to put other people in harm's way so it's tricky you know it's it's definitely tricky um it's really it's just it's so tragic and the thing is too like I I can't the minute this story broke and especially when I heard that the kids were in the house I was just I couldn't stop thinking about them I couldn't stop thinking about them uh, like immediately like I remember seeing similar to I think I mentioned this before with like the Jean Benet Ramsey case I remember seeing like the National Enquirer like cover on like the checkout line at King Cullen (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when I was when I was little, you know what I mean? And this was the same. I remember seeing um, the cover. And I remember seeing, like, the grainy pictures of, like, the police, like, carrying the kids out. And I was a kid myself. And so it really kind of gave me the perspective of, like, how awful that must be to, like, wake up and your whole world is gone like it's it's just gone 
And it was and the fact that it was within someone's control. Like, it's not something that was out of control. It wasn't like an earthquake or a fire. It was your mother. Yeah. How do you wrap your head around that ever? Like, I, I feel so much compassion and empathy for these these kids who are, you know, they're grown-ass adults now trying to make their way in this crazy world, missing their dad, who was a good man. Like, that sucks sucks <laughs> yeah no it's it's i mean if i really try to think about like what so i'm assuming they've and as we can see there's no they, they never came out and like did interviews about because they were little they so, were so i also, feel like, I also yeah. feel like they had that thing of like they don't really remember because again they were in a different part of the house they woke up to the commotion they were ripped out and then we're told after what had happened and at know. that age, like you don't hold, I mean, obviously in the moment they're probably were crying and sad, but as time goes on, like even as something traumatic as that, is it, is it a positive? Is it a negative? I, I kind of feel like the details, they know what happened, but it fades. Like you just, you know, I bet they parents... remember. I bet they remember. I bet they remember waking up and police. And I bet they remember, the sounds and or the silence like those aren't they're old enough to remember like there are traumatic events i remember from my life not as traumatic as that just i'm not trying to compare but they're from me being younger than them that i can remember things i remember smells or what i was wearing or what i was like i bet they do so you know with some people even like multiple personality i know there's a different name for it now i'm sorry i'm not giving the pc correct name um that that can occur sometimes if a, a situation is too stressful typically occurs to like little kids if a situation is too stressful for them to handle their personality will fragment to protect them right so it's like either either they're totally blacked out and repressed it or they remember everything like I, I really feel like you know not like you're saying like not it happening but I think I read somewhere too that um the son had said that at one point during the night he said he he thought he heard a door slam or something like that so it's like I can't imagine living with that right you like know, how yeah. how hard you know yeah, yeah i get that i mean I, I just i agree and that's the kind of the consensus of the people actually knew and that was the whole thing it was like they could never imagine that this is what would have happened how it happened no by whom and all that so it was i can't you know the shock that even like you feel now or like i thought about even today like i just was re-watching some stuff and i was like yeah it's it's terrible but i can't i can't imagine what it feels like to you know like you, like you said the friend ron this chick comes over. It's not the. It's definitely not the first. Why else are you answering your phone or your door at three thirty in the morning? Because it's not the first time, right? And then you hear all this crazy stuff. And I think part of it is like they don't want to believe it because it's like it's too crazy to imagine. But at right. the same time, also, yeah, she's she's probably said some real insane things in the past, and she'll go home, she'll sleep it off. I'll see her tomorrow. It'll be like it never happened. And, you know, and then little by little, the night became more and more real. The pistol, right. you know, her being frantic and, you know, and then them going there and actually confirming 
the thing they did not think was real. Right. I just, I just, I just feel like for everyone involved, it's traumatic. Like it's, oh a thing yeah, can't can't forget ever. Even the people, like even, I mean, not even, but ev- everyone. Her friends that she called that like woke up and like went to the house. Her sister. It's traumatizing for. I mean, like even like the cops who like have to go in there and see that and remove the kids, right? These are people, you know, I've heard a lot of stories about crime scenes that have really bothered, you know, kind of like hardened, um, you know, detectives or officers because they have kids at home and it makes them, it makes them think of their own kids and stuff like that. So really, you know, any, anyone who kind of has hands or or eyes or anything in this situation is going to be you know walk away with with something sad and like i said even like reading about this again um and kind of going deep into it just kind of gave me almost kind of like a heavy feeling after that was like oh i forgot how much this sucks because it does it does suck and it's really um you know to kind of turn this you know this is part of his story this is how his life ended but this doesn't have to be necessarily how his story ends right like we don't need to remember him for the way that he died when we can remember all of his great contributions to the entertainment industry and to his Mm -hmm. kids who are apparently i think his son's like doing like writing and like stand up and stuff um i didn't try too hard to find him i was a little curious but uh, you know um and his daughter, who's like so beautiful and and lovely and whatever. So, um, here is something interesting I heard that I would, don't know if you heard, and I didn't know about until I read this, but I thought it was kind of funny. So, <laughs> apparently, John Lovitz had accused Andy Dick. Have you heard this? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Had accused Andy Dick, who had worked with Phil on news radio, of reintroducing Bryn to cocaine. So we're backtracking a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Which then led to her relapse and ultimately a mental breakdown. Andy Dick claimed to have no knowledge of her condition. That's what it says on Wikipedia That in those words. I'm not sure what that means. Like, he knew she loved cocaine. He didn't know she was in recovery. Like, what does that? Didn't know her condition. Whatever. I don't know. That's what it sounds like. Right. He gave her blow, but didn't know she was having trouble. But that's blow. weird. Like you just like, hey, want some coke? Like what are you <laughs> He's that I mean, if you want to go into like a guy who is that guy, I feel like he's he's that feeling that. That sounds like something he would do. Yeah. Well, here's so I like it's not really funny because this is real life. This really happened. So John Lovitz would later uh say because initially he did, but then he would later say he no longer blamed Andy for Phil's murder, but he initially was, like, holding Andy responsible, right, for hand and bring kind of the keys to that. Um, but claimed, so John Lovitz claimed in 2006 that Andy Dick approached him at a restaurant and said something very weird to him. He said, I put the Phil Hartman hex on you you are the next to die. Jesus. So, um, knowing Andy Dick, and, like, I don't know him personally, but, like, I know. He's what a disaster. Oh, what are you doing, Rito? Yes, I can hear you. 
I was peeling the the the, the artwork off the off the cam. Sorry. You're gonna save it for later. <laughs> <laughs> but knowing what I know about Andy Dick, that definitely sounds like something he would a hundred. It sounds do. like he would something he would do. So wait, so like, and it's fucked up. Let's just say it, that. It, well, that's what I think. Like, like for that, if if he really said that. You're an asshole, and you deserve a, a throw punch, like 100. percent And we don't we don't condone violence here at the podcast. However, we suggest it. Sometimes we suggest it, but don't commit assault unless you really want to, and then don't hold me accountable. But so John, in the in that case, took the high road and had him ejected from the restaurant, right? But the next year at the Laugh Factory, which is like a famous comedy club in LA. Mm-hmm. It is said that the two had another argument, and I'm trying not to smile so big, which culminated in John Lovett smashing Andy Dick's head into the bar, <laughs> which I'm not mad about. I thought that was a funny story that I wanted Just to in, share. And I don't, I've never heard that, but... Over the years, I think we've all like so Andy Dick obviously like rocketed to you know from him, Joe Rogan, Phil Hartman, they all were on talk radio together. Andy Dick was a stand-up, maybe more of like a you know comp comedic actor. I mean, he had he had a, re- a variety show or like a he did like, like he had like a skit show on MTV, I believe, and it was good. I mean, I loved Andy Dick, but by like the twenty-third time he was in the rehab, we were all like, okay, this guy, and even to this day, like. He is not where I guess he could have been, possibly, because he is a, is a an, has a bad addiction to. Lots Honestly, of though, like as a person, because initially I was like, you know, I enjoy comedy, I do. He became too cringy. Like it was trying. It, he was trying to be too. He was too edge lordy for me. Where I was just like, initially, I was like, oh, this is a new guy in the scene, like whatever. And then I was just like, this, I'm not interested in him anymore. And that was even without, like, he was just trying to be extreme for the sake of being extreme, and that's not like fun to me. Like, just whatever. But so, and I can't, I cannot picture John Lovitz like being being violent like i can't picture it <laughs> so uh, he would have to be like take that in his voice yeah i can't picture it so if he did that if that's a true story then i i like it <laughs> i like the story but i can't i can't picture it um i will but... do further research i bet somewhere someone has mentioned that <laughs> it's like 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 in a podcast or telling John Lovett stories because I've heard John Lovett stories they're typically not like bad. that <laughs> so they're, they're typically how John Lovett is like a he's like a ham like of a yeah. yeah yeah so like I could understand like if someone said that like if someone said that about your friend came up to you and was like I put a hex on you so you're gonna die like your friend I would. I'm not going to say because I it's assault. I'm not going to say mad. what I would do. I would be, especially would be not just, you know, it's not like out of the blue. That's him being a piece of shit. Yes. Like knowing it's going to hurt his feelings because that guy actually got murdered by his wife. And right. you know that this person blames you to a degree. Yes, you didn't, you weren't re- directly connected to the murder, but I can understand how, like, imagine if we had a friend, you, you know, we had mutual friends and their life went to shit. 
and you know that this drug addict was one of the things that like put this person who was trying to get off drugs right back on you know a person makes their own decisions but if you're like you either are going to be not part of their drug path right or you're gonna or you're gonna block it this guy did the opposite he like was like oh yeah let's let's get high and that claim of like well i didn't know she had a problem with it it's like everyone there's no one out everyone knew she had a problem yeah but that's the thing like even him saying that because my takeaway like i said of andy dick being like cringy is that i can almost see him saying that as like he really thought it was a funny joke to say maybe or, yeah. or like like he's like he's trying to still be that like edgy humor like he thinks it's funny but it's like just at the line it doesn't cross the line punch him in the face punch him in the face like that's not okay <laughs> i feel like that guy has been punched in the face quite a bit actually you know what <laughs> that's probably true i mean his life really went to absolute shit where yeah. he is now who the hell knows who cares but I feel yeah. like I saw him in something recently, or I don't remember. I don't he remember a, if I was watching like an old thing. And he was I living him. in the shed last time. I mean, this is like probably ten years ago. A but shed. He was, yeah, like someone had like one of those like she sheds in their backyard, like a nice shed. Andy Dick was, was living in a she shed. Yeah, it was like <laughs> someone's like you know like Beverly Hills shed. Obviously, it was furnished, but yeah, an eight by ten, a ten by ten shed in their so backyard. Like a jail just, cell. Yeah, he was. He really has been. I watched a, an interview with him. I think he was on like Norm McDonald's show, and he might have said the number, but it was at, at some point it might not have been there. But I think he said something like it almost two dozen times. Like he has been in rehab more than fifteen times, which yeah. seems insane. And I also feel like from John Lovett's perspective, if John Lovett's is a friend of Phil. So Phil didn't do coke. His wife was an addict, killed him and her, herself. So many people have died from drugs that they probably know personally. And here's Andy Dick, this yeah. you know essential yeah. shitbag, still kicking, still floating around, still being yeah. that like sad sap, like sob story of a person. So I could get where like it's more than just him saying a shitty thing. It's like, dude, you should be dead. Like that's yeah. how I feel like John would feel like. Yeah, I get that. I do want to um, I want to wrap this up, and then I want to talk about something else. Um, not so, it's relevant, but um, I just want to say, you know, after all of these horrible events, so Bryn and Phil's bodies were cremated per their wishes, and their ashes were spread over um, Emerald Bay in Catalina, so like Catalina, Santa Catalina Island, because that was a place that Phil really loved. Um. So the day of Phil's death, that night's performance by the Groundlings was canceled. They canceled that. And so were the rehearsals for The Simpsons. The Simpsons, when I when I read this and wrote it, I literally almost started crying. Like, I'm not even kidding you. The Simpsons retired Hartman's characters rather than recast them. Because they were like, no one can touch, no one can touch this. His final appearance episode on The Simpsons is also dedicated to him, and so is his final film, Small Soldiers. Posthumously, Phil also was inducted into Canada's Walk of Fame, and he received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And lastly, just for his accolades, of which there were more than what I'm mentioning here. There are more. Um, but in 2015, Rolling Stone magazine ranked Hartman as one of the 10 
greatest Saturday Night Live perform uh, performers of all time. All time. That's of all of the years. But so I'm never going to get to talk about him because his death wasn't wasn't true crime. But we're talking about comedians. We're talking about deaths. Um, Chris Farley. Man, Chris Farley was such a loss. But it's, re- it's relevant here because they're talking about, I think when they said it was Phil's last show. I think it was the end. It was the end of that season. 90, whatever it was, 94. They did yeah. a musical goodbye. They, they were doing the end number, which is famous in my family as well, because we love the sound of music, right? When all the kids go to bed and they're singing so long farewell, right? And they each take their turn. And the last two people on the stage who wrapped up that song were Phil and Chris Farley and the spotlight kind of closed on them and it just got smaller and smaller. Um, you know, and so many comedians, like you're, like you were saying, um, John Belushi, right. Mm-hmm. And Chris Farley. And, and there's, there's others of course as well. Um, you know, die of, of drug overdoses or, or have that thing where, they never think they're good enough. Like they're so like these funny guys, right? Mm-hmm. Like Robin Williams as well. Yeah. Where they're just like they're so loved and they can't see how much they're loved. And they they do things to to hurt their bodies. They like abuse their bodies because they just can't they can't cope with like they can't they don't think they're good enough. They have kind of like this imposter syndrome and they can't see their value, but we can. Mm-hmm. And we miss them. Like all the people I just mentioned, like imagine where they would be today. I mean, Chris Farley might have had a heart attack anyway because he couldn't stop eating for the life of him. <laughs> well well, it was yeah, it was every it was with Chris, it was everything. The drugs I know. were the were the were maybe the you know, on his toxicology report, they'll like note it was, you know, because of cocaine, but it was, that was just one of the things. He drank a. Did you did remember the dr- stories they heard about, or they told, like David Spade told about him, like they would go out and he'd get like huge, like the biggest steak. And then with every bite of steak, he would literally put like butter, yeah, like a was pat a of butter on every bite of steak that he ate. He was just like a mess, but. He was so funny and he was so kind too. Like he would go do things at like children's hospitals just in like his downtime without any, like he never talked about it or publicized it or whatever. He would just go, you know, he was, he was a good guy. And like I said, he's not a true crime case, so he'll, he won't be covered here, but I wanted to take the opportunity um, just to mention him because He's he's been one of my favorites and just, you know, that last scene with him and Phil kind of closing out together. And then I think what what was it within just maybe like a year or so they were both gone? Well, I think I think Phil Hartman's last appearance. So I'm going to double check real quick. Let's see. I'm pretty sure that was in the because it was it was 94, I believe, or 95, something like that. So it was a couple of years, but they died within months of each other. So Phil Hartman was murdered. In December of 97 and Chris Farley died in March of 98. Now I remember, it's funny, I was trying to think like when you were talking just before about remembering the headlines, 
I kind of feel like I also did, but it was, you know, 97, I was like, well, how old was I? I was probably like... Uh, I think it was 98. Or, yeah, 98. I was... Yeah. I was no, 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 he died. Phil Hartman died in... Um, 1998. Uh, May 27th, yeah. 1998. Yeah. So, May, and then Chris died in 97. So, yeah, I remember when Chris Farley died, I was a kid running around. I was like 14. Right. 13, 13, 14. And then Hartman died a few months later. If I remember correctly... There was so much media around it that by the time I like found out what happened, like you know, before I even like I wasn't reading the Inquirer. I'm sure my mom was, but it was already like that documentary about like the last days of Phil Hartman. Those like ABC or NBC, whatever. Like it came out like it couldn't have come out more than a few months after because it like happened all so fast. Like he was dead, and then before I knew it, like I could turn on the TV and like there was a documentary about like the details. Yeah. So it happened fast. I mean, it was a huge loss. It was, but that is definitely something that's brought up when either one of those guys are brought up as far as like remembering them. Yeah. Especially, especially guys like Adam Sandler, the guys who were like their friends. Right. Will, will always like show that clip of that because that's, yeah, that's how they ended. Cause that was his last one. I think Farley left not long after he went to go make right. movies and become hugely famous. Tommy boy, et cetera. <laughs> Tommy and, boy um, is such a classic. Yeah, it definitely holds up. It's um, such a classic. I, I feel like I need to watch it because I agree. I was a Tommy Boy. Yeah, I haven't watched it in a long time. Oh, you better watch it. And um, I, yeah, growing up, like guys like that, sort of like to, to talk about like how comedians, like how it's it's a little harder hitting. Not to say like someone else being murdered is not important, but growing up, I was molded by like Jim Carrey, Robin Williams, yeah. Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, like. That's the kind of stuff that kind of like when you're a kid kind of like sticks and and sinks in deeper than like, you know, when you're a 13 year old kid, you can watch the movie Philadelphia with like, you know, that's like a serious, you know, but, but you're not it's not quite sinking in. You're just you don't have enough life experience to care. You're like, whatever, this guy's dying. I don't care. About no, this. I know. But then Chris Farley and Tommy Boy or 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 Jim Carrey and like Ace Ventura it becomes like, it's not even like, ooh, that's one of my favorite movies. It is like a p piece of what makes me the person that I am. Yes. So Phil Hartman it's is so in that true. Case. It's not like a, ooh, I remember that movie and I can quote it because it's like a, it's in the zeitgeist of like my life. It's because it brings me back to a, not just like a moment of like, ooh, I saw that in the theater who I was at the time, which was yeah. a kid, but yeah. like it and how it changed the trajectory of like what I care about, why <laughs> I care true. about it, what is important to me. So that's why I think the Phil Hartman thing, because this is what I said at the beginning and I, and I, I feel it more even now. Yeah. In the movies, he wasn't like the big star. He wasn't like the Chris Farley even, but I feel like because he was the way he was, as far as like the straight man, the, smart character comedian he just missed because a few years from then like again like movies like the apatows and the um i forget his name i'm gonna i'm tired i apologize but the, <laughs> you know like old school yeah road trip those were like that first vein of like late 90s early 2000 comics that kind of like swept everyone up and then from 2000 to like you know, think about like every Apatow movie, uh, all the, you know, Knocked Up and, uh, you know, all, all the I movies. could see him in those very easily. He could have I easily can picture been, him right in there. 
I feel like look look at like what Adam Sandler does. Adam Sandler is also a, 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 a as, as they say a mensch. He <laughs> employs his friends, even guys like Chris Rock, who don't need money. Right. Chris Rock is world famous and it makes millions of dollars, but he wants to make movies whether we like them or not, which I think I like most of his movies, not all of them, because he just wants to work with his friends. I feel like Phil Hartman would a hundred percent be like the Rob Snyder, the you know David Spade. First in- of all, he is come on, he is Phil Hartman is miles above Rob. Schneider. Yeah, but I'm not like, saying I'm not saying I'm not come saying on. he's like good or better. I'm saying he those guys are in all Adam Sandler's movies. Phil no. would be one of those guys in every one of those movies. No, I think he would. He, I really he, think would, he would he would he just missed that giant wave because we again we had from 1986, right? So Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman, John Lovitz, that you know cuz SNL was considered dead. From 86 to the late 90s, and even like I, I love the early 2000s SNL too, like the Bill Haters and, the, and Seth Meyers and those guys. But, Stefan. Yeah, exactly. Stefan. But I from the Stephane. late, late yes. 80s to like 95 or 96 when Farley and those guys left and Will Ferrell came on, that's like a solid 12, 15 years of like these comedians that were like absolutely awesome what they did. And then that spawned the following decade and a half, two decades of movies that we see that we've lived through over the past 20 years. He 100% would have really had bigger, more memorable roles in that period of time, but he was robbed of that. So that's, I think, I think so. Why I think so too. It was like, it's like extra sad because it's like, yeah, he was, you know, if you think about it in 1986, he was 38 years old. He was a little bit younger than I am right now, a year younger. So he st- he got on SNL when he was already older. That's so weird so, to think about that he was one year older than me when he got on SNL. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Yeah, no yeah. offense so he, to you, podcast listeners. I'm doing this yeah. podcast, but <laughs> yeah, no. So he like he like kind of was doing this thing and building the person that he was all these years. Yeah, gets on the show. He leaves the show. He's just getting into movies, and that's it's it makes so much sense the more I think about it. You know, Chris Farley and Adam Sandler and those and Will Ferrell, basically they left SNL to make movies for themselves and like guys like Lorne Michaels facilitate that. He produces the movie, he yeah. funds them, whatever it is. And maybe Hartman didn't want to do that. He wanted to just go be an actor, but he was about to be in the world where this boom of comedy was about to hit. And he would have 100%. 100%. Been, I was just right thinking the, the same. Whether whether it was doing his own thing, whether it's a part in someone else's, whether Lauren Michaels was going to write things for him. Like, it does, he would have been somewhere, but, a, but in a lot of stuff. You know, he, he definitely would have been. I agree with you. And I definitely agree, too, with what you were saying about... I think that's one of the reasons why those things... Uh, These have been almost like such heavy hitting ones, like what you're saying, because these people are are little pieces of you. Like you're saying, like the Robin Williams one, Mm -hmm. um, that was particularly that was that one was particularly difficult for me for many reasons, which I won't get into um on this episode, but that one was very difficult for me. Um, the Chris Farley one is such a l- loss. Like I said, it would have happened one way or another. Um, 
but all these people like there are things I can quote them because they're just ingrained in me like mm-hmm. I can quote so many pieces of Tommy Boy I can quote so many lines of Troy McClure from The Simpsons I can quote tons of Jim Carrey quotes and he's still with us thank God <laughs> but tons of Robin Williams like these are pieces of us so it's like especially when this person like we we're saying is is relatively unproblematic and he wasn't doing things like like John Belushi and Chris Farley where they're going out and they're partying like crazy right and it's almost like not a shock like it's tragic but it's not a shock mm-hmm. this was so different because nobody thought even like their worst argument he was just like oh they should they should really get out of there uh oh did I lose Alicia. you Ooh. Ooh, for a second there the wi-fi just kind of got wonky you still with me yeah they, uh, they would cut their <laughs> losses right but they didn't think it would end like i am i am are you still there are you with me oh sorry yeah, yeah you just the screen just went all like i was like am i falling asleep no no, just sorry. Yeah, no, I, was, I didn't want to interrupt your point, but like I was like, I was like, oh god, we're right here at the at the end, and it just like dies now. Like freaking <laughs> Megan just got new Wi-Fi. I'm the only one in my apartment. How is the Wi-Fi not like? It's the retrogrades. Lighting? It's the retrogrades. <laughs> They're coming for us all. Watch your technology, folks. Make sure you're all charged but, up and saved. But, but yeah. yeah, I agree with far with Farley, and I mean, Belushi was before you know our time. We know who the guy is. But I feel like it's sad, but I, I assume a lot of people around them, even their most dear loved ones, were like, of course he's dead. Of well, a lot course. of those episodes, a lot of people, like if you if you watch documentaries about them, it's always their friends saying, you know, we saw it coming. We didn't want for it to be true. We, you know, whatever the case is. But, you know, it wasn't a surprise. It was just tragic. But this is one that really no one saw coming. This, was, this wasn't the... Um, this wasn't what anyone would have guessed, and that's what makes it, you know, all the more tragic, really, is that, you know, it didn't need to go this way, and and it did, unfortunately. Um, and it's really, it's just, there's, there's, I can't even think of a more fitting word than, than tragic. It is, because it's a travesty, that's another one. It, it's really yeah. just the worst um and he's missed because like like you're saying he would have been part of our lives still today in one way or another whether he's voices in a show or whether he's you know acting you know in a live action thing doing cameo on some kind of sitcom like it you know he would have been around um and we've all been robbed unfortunately (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly how I feel. I mean, and the more I think about it, because all the things that I like, the, the majority of the things that I like are, you know, comedy. So, um, yeah, the more I think about it and, like, go through my brain right now, like, the things that I've liked over the past 20 years, yeah, he would have he would have been right at the center of yeah. all those universes. Do you remember – so you were saying – I know you touched on this before. You said you saw the movie Jingle All the Way? Is that a movie you saw? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think I saw it in the theater, but yeah, definitely that was a, a huge Christmas movie in the late 90s. And up until this day, it's, it's definitely, you know, I like that movie. I don't know that I've rewatched it, but I remember, because you remember for a while, there was like, they kept doing kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger kid movies. Yeah. Do you well, remember? Kindergarten <laughs> Cop. Yeah, Kindergarten <laughs> Cop. 
No, there was another. There were yeah, there was another one too. Well, there's okay. Well, so like, let's see. There was Kenny like Martin. him and like a little kid. Wait, let me see if I can look it up. Wait. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, uh, Last Action Hero. Oh, I think that was it. Yeah, that was Cop, it. Jingle all the way. Yeah, I mean, and look, Phil Hartman. Again, supporting actor. He, the movie's not about Phil. He's just the next door neighbor, the annoying guy who flirts with John Kim. I'm pretty sure was he is he John Kim on that or is that? I honestly have not seen that movie in a long time. Hey, look, Sinbad's in that movie. I Sinbad, like Sinbad was in that movie. It's he was a, a big great... thing in the nineties too. Sinbad, yeah, remember, the, remember the nineties? Oh my god! But <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like in these little roles that he got, you know, as because they just wanted the comedian to you know to play the straight man against Arnold Schwarzenegger against. Uh, I don't think he really interacts with Sinbad, but in that role that he got. It it's it's perfect. Now I'm not saying I'm like you know I don't think he had like good roles. But obviously Simpsons, SNL. I just know the more I think about it, the more I realize. Oh man, he was about. I mean, obviously he's dead, and it's you know, but he was about to be in the world that comedy movies. Because I I consider I'm sure everyone has their feelings about. 80s comedies or 70s comedies you know animal house and porkies and that kind of those different like you know decades of comedy but i really do feel like from the late 90s to about uh, 2010 was like this like renaissance of comedy like movies so I just want I just want to read some of these to you guys about so i just did it we kind of touched on like his his bigger movie roles right and he didn't have a ton just because like you were saying you know he did he was kind of on the edge of of getting more but let's talk about his television parts right he's in so many more things than anyone even realized he was on so i'll start in 19 1984 um whether he was a voice he's doing a lot of voices in these things and they're cartoons and live action the new scooby-doo mysteries Pink Panther and Sons, Magnum P.I., The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, The Jetsons, Dennis the Menace, DuckTales, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, Tailspin, Tiny Toon Adventures, Sesame Street, Darkwing Duck, hello, mm -hmm. that's my childhood more, um, Tom and Jerry Kids, Animaniacs, The 12 Days of Christmas, How the Grinch Stole Christmas Special Edition, then he was on, he was on news radio. I'm skipping some things. He was on Caroline in the City. He did voices for Ren and Stimpy. He was on Seinfeld. He has been all over. If you are a 90s kid, if you are an 80s kid, you know Phil Hartman, even if you don't think that you do. I promise you do. And he's contributed a lot. And we're sorry that he had to leave us so early and i keep i keep trying to give make it upbeat and then i make it sad again and i don't mean to do it yeah um, i was gonna say that i was like i thought we we're gonna end on a high note and i'm now i'm like now i'm sad i know because i keep because that's how i feel and i'm sorry i'm but sorry you know what? there's no way to like because it's it, it's that empty feeling of like no matter how much we wanted or think about it like it's it's there's no there's no uh, undoing the things that have occurred so no that's all we're left with is like this and I'm sure, like, all his friends feel the same way, that gap. 
the that 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 whole that void I feel that he like would have went right into. Yeah, it's the same where I feel like they probably do the same where they're like, oh, remember when he did this and remember this, and they're like, yeah, yeah, and they think about it, and then they're like, oh, right, where it ends the same way. So I really don't want to leave you guys on like a <laughs> on like a sad or like a low because he gave us so much and he lives in all of his work. Um, still, you know, so that's the good news is, you know, we do have those things. Those are his legacy for us and his very memorable voice. Um, and go watch Jingle All the Way this Christmas. Let's give it an, a new push where all of a sudden it's going to be trending and people are going to be like, whoa, why is Jingle All the Way trending after all this time? What's going on? Why is Sinbad a hashtag on Instagram or X or yeah. whatever the hell it's called now? Um, where is Sinbad, by the way? What happened to Sinbad? So Sinbad always worked as a stand-up. And I think last year or two years ago, he got cancer. He's still alive. He's, mm. I think he's doing okay. But yeah, he got he, he fell into a rough patch. It sounds but like I, you personally know him. I You're love like, well. <laughs> I do like Sinbad. I do like his stand-ups from the 90s. And I just think he's fun. Like, he had a cameo, if you remember. He was on an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It was him. I don't remember. Yeah, him and the the lead singer for, um, what the hell's the name of that band? Basically, when, it's when Frank, is it when Frank? No, no, it's Dennis goes to a mental institution. He thinks he goes to a mental institution, but he's like, he imagines the whole thing. Sinbad's on the episode. He also did a couple voice spots on like American Dad. Like he's 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 been out there. He's, he's been oh, really? around. Okay. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he. So, uh, but yeah, yeah last so... I heard, he got sick. And but he's still okay. out there. November twenty twenty, his family announced to the press that Sinbad was recovering from a recent stroke. Oh, okay, that's. But there's no. Maybe there's nothing else about it. So yeah, shout out to Sinbad. We hope that you're well. We would love to see you do things when you're feeling up to it right no, no pressure i like to speak directly to celebrities as if they're ever going to listen to this or find this somehow um maury povich still looking at you still still talking about you i think there was someone else previously but i doesn't matter because right now it's all about sinbad um so yeah i guess we could leave it at sinbad <laughs> Do you have any yeah. other thoughts or anything else you want to no, share? No, no, I totally think I, I got it all. I said everything I had to say about this particular. Do you feel, do you feel better after saying it all, do you, getting it all out there? Can you process yeah. this better now? I do. I think so. Yeah. I think I'm going to definitely watch. First, I'm going to watch Tommy Boy. Um, Tommy Boy. Maybe not tonight. Uh, maybe tonight we'll see what streaming services it's on, but I will take the time to like do a deeper dive on Phil Hartman in the yes. next couple of days. I will. I just want to talk about really quick the um the scene in Tommy Boy where he's talking about the brakes on the car oh, on the yes. executive's desk. Classic and he like scene. he like lights the car on fire and the executive's just staring at him like he's <laughs> absolutely insane. And just there are so many things in that movie that when you rewatch re it, it's just they're so funny, such funny little <laughs> little yeah. bits. Like even like I use a lot of um, gifs. That is, does that age me um, as a millennial? That uh, 
I still use gifts, but I do like to, I do enjoy a Chris Farley, um, gif like for the, for the love of God, let me sleep. That one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's another Tommy boy. The that fact that a little he is, coat. The, the fact that he is a gif speaks. He has to tons of gifts. The fact yeah. that he is one, he died long before oh, yeah. any of that existed. Yeah. Oh, we miss you. We miss you, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. So I guess I guess that's all. Do you have anything else random that you want to talk about? <laughs> we all uh, I mean, I've always got random things. I'm gonna, let me just pour myself some of this beautiful 73 degree temperature water. Mm. It's good that you're narrating because otherwise people are going to think you're just like straight up peeing next to your microphone. And that would have been gross. Well, I am sitting on the couch in my living room, so if I was just straight up peeing, I'd have other problems. Listen, no one knows. No one has to know about what's going on um, (laughs) in your house. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have anything else about about Phil Hartman. Just I don't want to make it sad again. Um, Just go watch his stuff. Second resurgence of uh, Jingle All the Way. Give Arnold a little boost as well. Sinbad. Come yeah, try to, to find us. try to find like a there's gotta be clips on Instagram that you can like throw up in the stories to uh of of Phil Hartman's role in Jingle All the Way for sure. <laughs> he really was he is I can see him like if they ever did a live action Simpsons in addition to being all of his other voices, right? Like he was Duff Man too, I believe. Um he could have been a great Ned Flanders. I know it's not his voice. I know he's not voicing him, but just the way that he portrays this neighbor in Jingle All the Way mm-hmm. could very easily pull off. And I don't know there's a role that that man couldn't have pulled off, honestly. He's a great. Yeah, he was character. a great character actor. Yeah, character actor for sure. Faux show. All right. Well, I guess we're going to leave it there. Um, Hashtag Sinbad. Hashtag Sinbad. Don't forget to let us know how much you hated our conversation about hydration at the beginning of the episode, like we talked about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But otherwise, I'm going to ask you again, like I said, it's been a minute, so I'm going to start hustling you again to please rate, review, subscribe. Helps us do bigger and better things here at True Crime Time. Um, We'll try to find a little more uplifting, as uplifting as true crime can be, topic (laughs) for next episode that's maybe not about a beloved person, um, entertainer, losing his life. And uh, I'll see you next time. Alrighty. Peace. Peace out.